Let's turn this afternoon to Leviticus chapter 19, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 25. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. If there's one extensive block of scripture in the Old Testament that comprehensively sets forth the, in practical terms what it means to be holy as the people of God, then it is Leviticus chapters 18 through 21. Whereas chapters 1 through 17 are concerned with ritual, ceremonial holiness, chapters 18 through 21 are concerned with what we would call practical day-to-day holiness. Holiness in public as well as holiness in private life. Holiness that's based on God's own holiness, as in Leviticus 11, 44, 45, 19, 1, 20, verse 6, as well as the fact of his being Lord over all of our lives. You will hear God not only saying to Israel, be holy, for I am holy, establishing a basis for their holiness, But you'll also hear him say, I am the Lord. In other words, I am the Lord who sets the agenda for your lives. Chapter 18 presents God as summoning Israel to sexual purity. And in that chapter, God forbids certain relationships, condemning them as abominations. In chapter 19, which we have been looking at over these past few weeks, we saw that among the instructions related to holy living is respect, the duty of respect for parents, of refraining from idolatry, verses 3 and 4, refraining from theft and falsehood, verse 11, the responsibility of compassionate regard for the poor, verses 9 and 10, respect for the physically challenged, Verse 14, impartiality, as we saw last week in dispensing justice in the courts, verses 15 and 16. And we closed last time looking at verses 17 and 18, the prohibition against harboring resentment, hatred, and ill will toward another. God is saying to Israel, he's saying to his ancient people, Israel, in order to be holy, Or better yet, because I've constituted you holy, it's very important we get that. They're not doing these things in order to be holy, but they are doing these things because they are people holy unto the Lord. 
He says, this is how I want for you to live. And we begin this evening with verse 19 of this chapter, Leviticus chapter 19. Whereas the first 18 verses were mainly about human conduct in relation to one's neighbors. Verses 19, 23 to 25 concern human conduct in relation to both God and creation. In relation to both land and animals. God declared there, he says, you shall keep my statutes, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of materials. And when we read passages like these, the question becomes, well, what does that have to do with holiness? We find similar prohibitions to these in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 22, verses 9 through 11. And whereas these laws are not binding for us as Christians today, they are nevertheless certain applicatory principles that are relevant to us. And it's for us to determine the heart of what this verse, these verses are saying. And God seemed to have been saying at least two things to his people when he gave this bit of instruction. The first is the idea of respect for God's order in creation. Respect for God's order in creation. For ancient Israel, part of what it meant to live holy lives was to adhere to God's statutes as they relate to animal husbandry and agriculture. As the people bred cattle and planted seeds, they were to recognize the principles of separation that God had built in creation. They were to, they, they were to recognize and they were to discern in God's creation certain order which they should respect. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 33 and 40 teaches that God is not a God of confusion Hence, all things should be done decently and in order. And that God is not a God of disorder is made very clear from the creation narrative. According to Genesis 1, God is set forth as a God who brings order out of chaos, separating light from darkness, water from water, land from water. According to Genesis 1 verses 11 and 12, He made, the word of God tells us, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. That spells what? Order. Verse 21, he created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. Here's what the word of God says, according to their kinds and every wing bird according to its kind. We see there diligent order on God's part. And as such, the mixture of different kinds of animals for crossbreeding and the sowing of one's field with two different kinds of seed, seeds were seen, as one writer puts it, as out of keeping with the creation order that everything was made according to its kind. A second applicator principle that may be derived from this command in verse 90 to ancient Israel is this, that God is a God 
of separation. He's a God of distinction. He's a God who deals in this concept of separation. It appears that beyond these instructions, God was instructing his people to separate themselves from sin and defilement. So even with this bit of instruction where he's giving them, mundane as it seemed, do not mix this with that. Do not mix this cattle with that cattle. Do not mix this plant with that plant. God seemed to have been teaching his people a principle concerning the need for separation. He was teaching these people to put a distinction between the holy and the unholy. Respect for God's order in creation, the truth that he is a God of order and not a God of chaos and confusion. And that he is a God of separation is a timeless, relevant truth for us in our time. That he is a God who is a God of separation, a God who delights in distinctions is a lesson that is really needed in our time. These truths, such truths tend to be forgotten. We see, for example, in the whole sex culture of our time, this tendency toward what is known as unisex, where you're, you're sometimes going along, you can't tell if it's a man or a woman, and God declared, for example, in his word, a man must not wear that which pertains to a woman and vice versa. Somebody says, well, how do we determine, determine what is for a man, what is for a woman? And the point is culture functioning in a healthy manner, assuming the culture is functioning in a healthy manner. Every culture has its principles as to what constitutes masculine dress and what constitutes feminine dress. Today, that line of distinction is becoming more and more blurred. You go in the store and you purchase a pair of jeans as a man and what happens? You have to wonder, you know, this really is not my fit. This really does not look proper in terms of my form. It, is, it really belongs to someone else. That's the kind of thing we're having in our time um, this move toward unisex. And it's not, um, um, it's not coincidental that back in chapter 8, the previous chapter, God took a whole chapter to talk about some of these things, about homosexuality and so on. Now in verses 20 to 22, we see the subject of holiness in relation to the remedying of abusive sexual practices. We read already verses uh, 20 to 22, and we have here the case of one who virtually takes advantage of another, a man who takes advantage of a woman who is a slave, and in the culture of that day, because a betrothal was legally speaking almost one and the same as an actual marriage, such illicit relationship was grounds for the death penalty. You'll find that, for example, in Deuteronomy 22, verses 22, through 27, according to Exodus 22, 16 and 17, in the case of a man seducing a virgin who was not betrothed, who, who is not betrothed and lies with her, we read, he shall give the bride price for her, make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, contrary to the unmercifully wrathful image many have of God in the Old Testament, 
Here we see God, merciful and compassionate God as he is, allowing an exception to this rule governing the death penalty for adultery in this case. And the exception is made on the grounds that the woman still belonged to her master and as such was not a free married she was not a, not a free married woman or betrothed woman, which technically meant that there was no adultery involved. Reminded here of the great truth of the mercy and grace of God, that God is not a God who is quick to act in wrath and in judgment. Whenever we hear people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he was just ready, vengeful, quick to execute his wrath, then a passage like this, you know, we see clearly how that he, you know, there are times he would restrain his wrath, his judgment. He is not, as men would have him, a, a cruel God. We gather from verses 21 and 22, however, that even though he is a God of mercy and grace, he does not, he does not overlook nor treat sin lightly. In saying all that we have just said, the point of verses 21 and 22 is that God does not take sin lightly. Even when he, to use the language of Acts chapter 17, the time of his ignorance, he winks at, he does not take it, does not mean that he takes it lightly. Notice, atonement was necessary. Atonement was necessary for them, for the man, in order for him to receive forgiveness. From the Lord. The guilty man had to make amends for by offering to the Lord a ram for a guilt or trespass offering. And in so doing, the priest was to make atonement to the Lord on his behalf. It's a reminder to us of this principle that though he is most gracious and though he is most forgiving of God, forgiveness, his forgiveness is not cheap, it is costly. God's forgiveness does not come cheaply it comes at a cost and when we think of our being forgiven today we must ever remember the great sacrifice of our lord jesus every time we think of our asking god for forgiveness we must remember that those sins that are being forgiven were paid for by our lord jesus christ and as if to highlight the enormity of this man's sins, note the language of verse 22. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. Notice the repetition suggesting there God is highlighting the fact that he has committed sin which must be forgiven if he is to have restored favor and fellowship with God. Verses 23 to 25, is, they are con these verses are concerned with holiness as it relates to God, giving God his due. We read, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten, and the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. This law anticipates that time when Israel would be living in the land. And God instructed his people here that for all of four years they were not to eat of the fruit of the trees they had planted. The fruit of the fourth year was to be reserved exclusively 
before the Lord as an offering of praise to the Lord. What was God teaching his people here with respect to holiness? God was teaching his people here that the labor of their hands was not to be considered as merely their or their effort. In other words, God the one who was responsible for the strength they had to produce in the first place. Only in the fifth year and after are they, were they allowed to eat of the fruit which God had promised them would yield its increase. And we have the principle there. God was saying, as it were, put me first and then you will know of my blessing. As it relates to the matter of holy living, this law served to impress on the nation then the need to trust God for their sustenance. Think of it. The need to trust God for their sustenance. You're going to wait until four years before you partake of that fruit. It took a lot of faith to let those four years go like that without your partaking. We must remember, these people lived in total dependence on the land. These people lived, we would say in a, in a, in a real sense, they, they, their lives were heavily dependent on the produce. And God was saying to them here, listen, don't touch the first four years in terms of the fruit. Don't touch the first four years in terms of the produce. That belongs to me. You may eat of it thereafter. And he says here, um, go back to what he says there in the verse. He says, and in the fourth year, all his fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit. Here's what he says, to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. God was laying claim to their possession, to what they produced. Second, this law served to impress on the nation the truth that God was the owner of the land and the one who was responsible for the harvest. It was not all a matter of their hands, the labor of their hands. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, except the watchman Except the Lord keep the city, the watchmen labor in vain. And the same held true for the farmers. Except the Lord blessed, except God was pleased to bless their efforts, then everything they did would come to utter ruin. Third, this law served to instill in the people of Israel gratitude and praise to God for his provisions. Gratitude and praise to God for his provisions. And here we recall the principle taught in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, which says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your bonds will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now once again, passages like those, remember what we have been saying in these studies, these are not to be taken and in a wholesale manner applied today, there are people who take verses like these in a wholesale manner and they say, well, you know, I'm just going to give to God and I'm going to expect God to pour out, to multiply my resources. Now, here's the point. He might well do that. And there's a principle in the word of God that if we put God first, if we honor God with our resources, God has a way of blessing us. But here's the point. We must not bank on this as an absolute carte blanche promise that just because we are sacrificial in our giving, that God is going to bless at least in terms of material possessions. And that really is 
a fallacy. There are people who are looking for material benefits in return because they have given sacrificially to the Lord. And here's the point. Many people give sacrificially and they do not see the kind of returns materially. But I tell you this. Here's the truth we can nail down. God always honors us when we put him first and when we, when, we, when we honor him with our resources. And here's the point. His blessing us does not come necessarily in the form of material prosperity, of wealth. But you know something? God has a way. You read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and what God does. Here's what Paul says, one of the ways God blesses when we give to him. He says this, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, you might abound to every good work. What is he saying there? God will see to it that you are equipped with such measure of grace that you are able to live for him powerfully and effectively. It doesn't have to do necessarily with material blessings. It can come in the form of inner peace, inner joy, that supernatural peace and joy. What did the psalmist say? He said this, you have put joy and heart, gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and wine increased. Tremendous principles we have been seeing in these chapters, in these verses of Leviticus 19. What does it mean to be a people holy unto the Lord? To be a people holy unto the Lord means this. It means to honor the Lord in his creation. It means that we must be a people who are given to practicing the principle of separation. God wants for us to be separated. He wants for us to be a holy people. And that goes down to practical areas of our lives in terms of even how we dress. We are to be different from the world. God wants us to be holy in terms of sexual purity. And God wants us to be holy as far as honoring him with our resources is concerned. 